I'm curious for your perspective on something to get us started with this message today. So when you are, when you're a teenager, we got a number of teenagers here, people will often talk about peer pressure, that that can be a very real thing, this pressure to do what the people around you are doing. And a big part of why that is significant when you're a teenager is that when you're young, you really care quite a bit about what people around you think. Like your friends, the people on your team, people in your class, maybe people in your neighborhood or your parents. So they get, there's something that's on your mind a lot. But then here's my question. I guess this one is geared more towards the adults is, do you think that as an adult, you grow out of caring about what people think about you? I actually want to hear your response. Do you think yes or no? I heard a no. Okay. Yes. You say yes. Yeah. I'm right now. Okay. <laughs> I'm curious. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I heard some no's and some yeses. Yeah. I'll be the first to admit I haven't. I totally care about what people think about me. And, uh, and my guess is actually, I'm, maybe you don't, but I would guess you think, you think more about it than what you think you do. Like, maybe it's not peers, but what does your family think about you? What does your spouse think about you? What do your kids think about you? You know, frustrated because your kids are not happy with you right now? That's or thinking about what people think about you. What about being on Instagram and you see someone's life looking perfect and yours isn't and you feel jealous over it? It's the same, it comes from the same place. It's the same, it's the reason why you don't post, you know, the hard thing, but you post the happy thing. I don't know. And I'm not, I'm just, maybe you don't, maybe you legitimately don't. But my guess is that you might more than you think, at least for me, I know that I do that I, I think about, that I, and I try not to. And this lesson today actually is probably going to be helpful for me to think less about what people think. Because this lesson today is going to direct us to what Jesus is thinking. What does he think about you? We're going to ask a question today when we see Jesus sitting at this meal. What is he thinking? The lesson we have, it's Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. 
You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now with our lesson today, we're into the second week of this weekends and Lent series, Time for Supper, which I know having a whole season of series of, of lessons that are connected by the fact that they happen around food, it can seem like a weird connection. Like, like oh, we're just going to come up with some random series. Um, but there's something, and I know Pastor Kate talked about it last week, there's something about when you come together with people around food, there's something significant. There's a connection there. That's actually part of why we always have coffee and treats out here on Sunday mornings. It's not just because we're hungry and need coffee. It's part of it. Uh, but it's more. There's something different about when you're standing there with a cup of coffee or tea or whatever you drink in your hand and you're talking with someone. It's different. There's a connection there. And if you look in God's word too, especially in the time period of when Jesus lived, meals were a really significant time. They meant something. They mattered. And so all these events that happen around meals are significant. And we can learn a great deal about Jesus when we look at these, these meal settings. Last week with our lesson, we talked about that setting where Matthew had been called to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's significant because Matthew was a tax collector. That detail is significant not because God's got anything against taxes. I mean, I know none of us like to pay it. But the bigger thing there, when you think about in Jesus' day, is that tax collectors, they were known for collecting more than they should, but then also... They, they collected taxes for the Roman government. And from the perspective of the Jewish people, the people who knew the promise that God was going to bring blessing through their nation, is that for the perspective of many of those people, to be a tax collector for the Romans, the Romans were the barrier to God coming through on their promise. That's what they thought. So to work for the Romans was to side with the enemy and was to be in the way of God doing what he promised he would do. And so God calls, Jesus calls this tax collector. That's significant. And then Jesus is seen eating at a house, of Matthew's house, with tax collectors and sinners. And then some religious leaders saw this. They were just shocked by it. And yet we were reminded in this that Jesus meets us right where we are. He meets you right where you are so that he can heal you and transform you and give you life. Today's lesson is kind of the flip of the setting from last week. Last week's lesson was at a tax collector's house, a house of a sinner, and then some religious leaders went past and saw this. This week with our lesson takes us to a religious leader's house, and yet there is a sinner who shows up on the scene. And it's here that we're gonna ask this question of what, what is he thinking? The lesson begins now. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, throughout the story of, of, of Jesus, and as it goes, especially as you get closer to the cross and to the season, as we go in a season of Lent, it becomes apparent that many of the Pharisees, many of those religious leaders became very anti-Jesus. But at this point, this scene is not necessarily a, a hostile scene to Jesus. 
So when we're told that one of the Pharisees invited Jesus, it really, it literally says in the original language that he requested or asked a favor, and he kept asking. So like, he's like, come on, I'm going to have you over for dinner. Like, this is a, a friendly scene overall. At the same time, we get this detail as it goes that he doesn't, like, go above and beyond with his hospitality. So he's not, like, like totally buying in all the way with Jesus at this point. And yet, at the same time, he's, he's inviting. It's a friendly scene. It's a friendly scene, though, that becomes a really awkward scene and uh, a, a, a an difficult, awkward scene, which it takes something for me to say that because I have this life model that life is one big, awkward situation, and the more you embrace it, the smoother it will be. This is, this, this is the way I roll. This is part of why I love youth ministry because there's awkward situations all the time, and I think they're hilarious. And my wife is like, gosh, you're so awkward. I'm like, bring it on, right? A lot of awkward situations I think are funny. This awkward situation is super uncomfortable. All right, so let's look through what happens. So there's a woman who lived a sinful life in that town, and she had learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as, he stu- as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. All right, let's just go through some of the awkward things here. First of all, an uninvited person is at your house. That in and of itself, weird. Now, granted, houses were set up a bit differently there. They tended to have kind of an outdoor courtroom area. People could come and go a bit more. So it's not quite as weird if there was someone just like sitting at my dinner table and I did not invite them. Uh, But still, awkward nonetheless. So you've got this woman who's uninvited, but then not only is she a woman who's uninvited, but she's someone who's known for being, having this really outwardly sinful life. And just think about the scene. This guy's a Pharisee. They are known for being super strict followers of God's law. And who do you think Pharisees hang out with? Who else was probably there at the table? Other Pharisees, right? So you got a house full of these like religiously elite people. And then this woman who is known for being really outwardly sinful. I want you just to like imagine like a gathering of pastors meeting here and then someone, I don't know, who works at an establishment that you don't want to be caught in shows up and sits at the table. How's it seem? Right? But then not only does she show up, but we're told about that Jesus is reclining. And by the way, this, we got we to kind of clarify the way tables and sitting at tables worked at that time because in my, in my world, reclining is like I got my feet up, right? Um, but tables were typically low. And so when you would sit at the table, you would lay on your side on like a pillow and then your feet would be away from the table, table behind you. So that's why it says reclining at the table. This is also helpful then because if you read through the account of the night Jesus is betrayed and we're told that, that uh, I think it was Peter mentioned to John to ask Jesus a question and then it says that Peter put his head on Jesus' chest. And I remember growing up thinking, gosh, this is so weird. Because if I'm sitting at a table and Jesus is next to me and I'm going to put my head on his chest, I'd have to be like, right? <laughs> you know, like who does that, you know? But if you're reclining on a side and then you're leaning back, to talk to Jesus, that makes more sense. Still, maybe still a little bit within our Midwestern bubble, but not quite as weird as like, you know. So they're reclining at the table. His feet are behind him. And just, there's still more awkward going on here. One, she's got a big jar of perfume. 
And the detail about it that's significant is that it's, it's very pungent. It smells, right? And probably a good smell, but nonetheless, the atmosphere has changed, you know? Maybe you've been somewhere and someone who's been wearing a lot of cologne walks in and, whoo, that guy's got cologne, right? And it just changes the feel. So she's got the perfume. But then she's kissing his feet. And I'm sorry, there's something weird about, like, baby feet are cute. And at some point, I don't know when, feet turn from being, like, cute to being gross. I don't know how or when it happens. I'm still trying to figure this out. But they're like, oh, adorable little toes. And then, get those away from my face, right? And it says that she keeps kissing and kissing and kissing his feet. And remember, there's a detail later that, This Pharisee had not given Jesus water to wash his feet. They wear sandals. They walk in streets where people walk with cattle. You know what was probably on his feet? Stank. Nastiness, right? On his feet. Just kissing him away. It's weird. This is awkward. This is really uncomfortable. And to top it off... She's weeping. <laughs> by the way, if that really caught you by surprise, I put that in there. And twice this morning as I was clicking through the slides before church, I clicked to that slide, forgot I put it in there, and just almost scared myself to death. <laughs> but just think, like, if you've ever been in a, a room and you're not expecting, like, there's a time when you're kind of expecting tears. You're at a funeral. You're having a hard conversation with someone. But if you're in a setting... If you're just having dinner with some friends and all of a sudden someone you don't know is standing there weeping, like when you're not expecting tears, it can be really uncomfortable. All right? I mean, so just add this up. And then she's weeping so much that she's getting his feet wet, these nasty feet. And then she's using her hair. I mean, who does that? Like she's using her hair to wipe his feet. I mean, just check the boxes when it comes to just uncomfortable, right? Stranger, someone who doesn't belong here, really smelly perfume, weeping, wiping his feet with her hair, kissing his feet. What is, what is he thinking? Well, before we ask, what is he thinking? Let's ask for a minute. Like, what is she thinking? You know, because if I were her, I would... Not be kissing feet, for one. Um, my hair is short, so that doesn't really, I can't really come, you know, that's not apples to apples there to join, um, but to, to consider. But I would not think I'd be wiping feet with my hair. I would not, I don't know if I'd be, I don't know. Maybe the bigger thing, though, is I don't know if I would be comfortable if I was known for having a sinful lifestyle, walking into a religious leader's home and sitting down at his, or coming up behind the table. I don't know about you, I, I would be, I would be so caught up with what they are thinking about me right now. You know? Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever started crying in front of someone, even somebody you know and care about. And often, what do we often say, like when we start crying? Once you kind of get a, a little bit of composure, what do you say to the person you cried in front of? I'm sorry, right? We're super uncomfortable with it. And yet here she is. Like, there's something going on. She, like, she's got all this. I'm like, I don't think I would be there. And yet, there's something more powerful going on in her that she does not care that she's at a religious leader's home, kissing feet, crying over these feet, wiping them with her hair. Something else is going on. And it has to do with what he, Jesus, 
is thinking. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, you can see kind of where Simon is coming from to begin with, but just something good, it's good to keep in mind is that in, in those days too, touching something was even more significant than if someone came and like touched you on the shoulder or touched your feet now. In those days, and part of the Old Testament ceremonial laws is that if you touch something impure, you know what happened? You became impure. And so part of it, as they tried to, to practice this out is that you were really careful with what you touched or who you touched. Very careful with that. And so here Jesus, is, she's touching him, and she's this sinful, dirty person. What's going on? But this is one of the remarkable things about Jesus and his ministry is, is he went up and touched like touched people who were unclean all the time. He touched someone who was dead, which was considered unclean. Script, like according to the Old Testament religious practices, he did not care about that. Why? Because he was the one who had the ability, the authority to come to that which was unclean and make it clean. Come to someone who was hurt and is ill and heal them. And that's what he's doing here. When he recognizes that Simon is thinking this, Jesus answered him, Simon, I, I have to tell you something. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So here Jesus paints us this picture of, of two men who owe a lot who owes someone a lot of money. And uh, thinking about debt, debt is something that if you've ever had it or have it, you know it's a hard thing to have. Because it kind of, it just, it restricts you in so many ways, right? You have to pay this back. And then if you don't pay this back, then there's, there's, there's issues and it restricts you from doing other things. And, and in that day too, you know, there are other stories where Jesus talks about debt and uses the example of someone who, says that, okay, if you can't pay the debt back, you know what's going to happen? You get thrown in jail. And it's probably even more hardcore then and than, it was, than it is now. We might think now, okay, it might hurt your credit score. You might not be able to get a loan again. You know, you might have to look at bankruptcy. Those, those things are all bad. But here we're talking real, like, you get locked up if you don't pay a debt. And so here he's painting a picture of two people who are kind of stuck, imprisoned by their debt. One of them owes... 500 denarii, but then the first one, let's see, what was the amount? Where did it go? 50? One is 10 times bigger than the other. So one owes a certain amount, one owes 10 times bigger. And so then Jesus says, well, which one is going to love him more? This is the real practical part of this. Okay, there's a debt canceled, but there's something in the original language that brings out the heart of this even more. The word where it's translated canceled, it doesn't really, doesn't literally in the original language say that the debt was canceled. What it literally says is which one, or that this, this, excuse me, this person here showed grace towards them, showed favor towards them. So in other words, when he canceled the debt of them, he was being gracious towards them. 
Well, what does that mean? We're going to take a few minutes and we're going to watch the Bible Projects video about what it is to be gracious. Because it's going to show us here more than just, as amazing as it is to think of having a debt canceled, that's awesome. It's even more amazing to see the heart behind what Jesus is saying here. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at the second key word in this statement, gracious. The Hebrew word is chanun, which is related to the Hebrew noun chen. This word chen is often translated as grace or favor, and if you study how this word is used throughout the Bible, you find a fascinating story. One meaning of chen is delightful or favorable. In the Psalms, a skilled poet is said to have lips of chen. That is, he can craft beautiful words that bring delight. Or a dazzling piece of jewelry is an ornament of chen. It attracts attention and favor. This is why chen is often the word used to describe a gift given with delight or favor. In these cases, chen could be translated as grace. Like in the story of Esther, who approaches the king of Persia to ask that she and her people be spared from death. She calls this a request for chen. And because the king delights in Esther, he favors her and grants her wish. So, giving a gift of favor is chen because it's motivated by delight. And the most extreme kind of chen is showing favor to someone who should get what they deserve, not a generous gift. Like Jacob, who cheated his brother Esau, ran away, and then after 20 years wants to come back and make things right. So he comes to Esau asking, may I find chen in your eyes? Jacob isn't asking for what is fair, but for favor. And surprisingly, that's what Esau gives him. He chooses to delight in his brother Jacob and show him grace that he doesn't deserve. Now, chen requires a generous spirit, which people sometimes have. But in the Bible, the one who shows more chen than anyone else is God. Like when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and they quickly betray him by giving their allegiance to a golden idol as their God. But then, Moses steps in and asks God to consider giving a gift that they don't deserve. And God says, yes, by showing the ultimate act of chen, forgiveness and a promise to be with these people. This character trait of God is so reliable that over 40 times in the book of Psalms, people cry out for God's chen when they're sick or in danger or when the Israelites are in exile. And the biblical prophets like Isaiah looked back to God's chen in the past and boldly declared that God will one day show chen to his people by delivering them and all creation from death and ruin. Now, when we turn to the authors of the New Testament, they describe God's chen with the Greek word charis, which means gracious gift. Like when we're introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus is God's glorious charis become human, sent into a world of people trapped in darkness and death. Because according to the Apostle Paul, we're like the living dead. God has handed humanity over to the destructive consequences of our selfish decisions. But, Paul says, God is rich in mercy, and by his charis, he's rescued us. He's talking about how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are offered to us as a generous gift of life that is more powerful than death. 
And as with any gift, all one has to do is receive it. So now you can see why the biblical authors talk so much about this description of God's character throughout the Bible. When people are willing to own their failures and ask God for chen, he has a consistent and generous response. God gives the gift of himself, his life and his love. And this is what it means that God is gracious. So what is Jesus thinking when he's looking at this situation, he's looking at this woman here, that this is a situation of grace, that he is being gracious towards her, which is even more than just saying like, okay, your debt's forgiven. That's huge. But being gracious is this whole, it's I delight in you so much that I'm going to give you a gift. You know, you think about like how when you give a gift to a, to a child that you love or a, you know, a spouse or significant other or whatever, and you do it just because, just because, you just do. So this, that's what's going on here is that, that he has delight in her and has loved her and she has received so much grace and so much love that that's why this is happening. I mean, Jesus, look at what he says. He says, now which of them will love him more? Which it's interesting too. The word in the original language is a, a word that you often hear um, or sometimes you'll hear explained in church uh, talking about love, that it's agape love. And there's various types of love in the Greek language, at least in, in, in the different words. There's, you know, the more romantic love. There's friendship love. And this one is, I like to call it all in love. Agape love is all in love. I am all in for you, serving you. Jesus is saying, where are you seeing more agape here? And what's happening here with this lesson with this woman who was in this uncomfortable, awkward situation, the reason why she is, is doing this is that she's overflowing with agape love, all in love for Jesus. See, Jesus, he explains, he says, okay. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You do not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. She had so received the love, the grace of God, that she was overflowing now with love back towards him. And Jesus is pointing out a contrast, like, you have not shown me much love. What's going on here? This whole uncomfortable thing is the result of the fact that she's received so much that she is now loving me in return. Now think about this for a minute. The fact that Jesus says that she loved much is huge because in our gospel lesson, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, what did he say? 
Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets, all of scripture comes down to love God, love your neighbor. The most, the greatest thing is, is to love God. All these other things are good, but it all comes down to loving God. So then here's a question for you. In this scene, you have this woman who is known as having this outwardly sinful life, and then you have Simon the Pharisee. Which one here in this scene is embodying what God wants most? The man who dedicated his life to practicing religion or the woman who was known for being sinful who was there causing this awkward scene? Which one embodies what God wants? Which one? The greatest command is to love God. What is she doing? Loving him much. Out of the two, the one who is putting on display what God wants is not the religious leader. It's the woman. It's that woman who you might imagine who was working that job at that place you don't want to mention but showed up here at the pastor meeting. That woman. She's the one who's displaying what God wants. Not that those other things are bad, like to being a religious leader and studying God's word, that's good stuff, right? Following the Old Testament law, good stuff. Simon welcomed Jesus to his house, good stuff, but not the greatest stuff. Because what God has ultimately ever just wanted most is for us to receive his love and then to love him in return. That other stuff flows from that and you will do those different things, but when it comes down to it, it's not about the stuff. You can go to church your whole life. You can serve at a Christian school. You can serve at church. You can work with the plant sale. You can do all the things. That's all great. But it's not what it comes down to. God's not here. You know what? I want you to do a bunch of religious stuff. God says, I just want, I want you to know that I love you. I want to forgive you. And then I want you to receive so much of that love that you just can't help but to love me in return. That's, all, that's what God wants. He doesn't need you to do, he's not looking for you to do all this stuff. I mean, when you receive God's love, it does change how you live, absolutely. But he's not looking for you to perform for him, to go through the motions of faith. He wants you to just be loved and love him in return. What is he thinking? Simon, this woman is why I'm here. This is what I've always ever wanted right here, this woman, for people to be loved and to love me back. That's, this is what I want, right here. And then Jesus goes on to make this beautiful, life-transforming statement to this woman. He says, your sins are forgiven. And the word forgiven, it's beautiful, literally means let go. You know how debt can kind of hold you, right? You're released. You know how guilt can hold you? It's released. Shame can hold you? It's released. Whatever's been holding you captive, you're released. Your past, it's all released. You've been let go. 
The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Because they know it. Only God ultimately can do that. So this is a real powerful statement. And Jesus just doesn't even bat an eye at that. He just goes on to say, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There are a few original language words that are great for you to learn. I mean, if you want to study Greek and Hebrew and learn more, it's great. But there's a few really good ones that are especially good. Here's one. The word shalom. Maybe you've heard it before. Shalom. Often it's translated peace, but it means wholeness and completeness. And it often is used to refer to when something was lost, but it's been restored. So peace with a person is not just the absence of conflict with them, it's the restoration of relationship. So Jesus is here saying, you can go in peace because what you lost, what you thought you could never get back because of where you've been, is restored. You get to be whole. What is Jesus thinking? He's thinking you are let go for what's been holding you back. We're at peace. Your life is whole because you've been restored. Now I want to ask you to think about this for yourself. In this scene, who do you connect more with? Simon the Pharisee or the woman at Jesus' feet? It might be that you connect more with the woman. Maybe that's been your story. And maybe the forgiveness of Jesus has hidden your heart. Or it might be that you're more like the Pharisee. Especially, and I know a number of you have been part of church a long time. And been going to church and doing those different things and you know Jesus died for you, but would you be caught weeping over Jesus' feet? Maybe not. I think for me, I'm kind of a combination, sometimes kind of a combination of the two. Because I'm not known for like, I'm not like, no, people aren't looking going, Pastor Abraham's a sinner. You know, I'm not saying that. But there are plenty of things in my life that I feel guilty and shameful for. And yet, I think many people would say, well, he's more like a Simon because he's, well, you know, I'm a pastor, right? Religious leader. And what I've found, and you don't have to be a pastor to feel this, is, is that, that we can have shame and guilt over things and yet be trapped by them because we don't want to be honest about them because we want to be seen as the Pharisee. You know, we want people to look and say, that's a stand-up, solid person. Which is good. We want to be solid people, but sometimes that desire to be seen in that way keeps us captive from being honest about the guilt and shame that we wrestle with. Do you ever, in wanting to be looked at like Simon, keep yourself trapped because you're unwilling to be honest with how you've been like the woman? And it doesn't have to be big outward stuff. It could just be those other things that you struggle with from day to day. You know, we don't, want to be, we don't want people around us to know that. Even, I got to tell you today, when, uh, when I asked that question about, do you think we grow out of uh, th worrying about what people think about us? I was not expecting the mixed response. Um, I thought we would say, no, we don't. And so when there was a mixed response, I was faced in that moment to say, okay, I'm going to be honest that I have it. And I felt a little bit of fear. And then I went, I'm just going to do it. Just going to be honest because I haven't. 
Because it's hard for us to be honest about that. But when we are, we have this lesson. They ask, who is this that we even forgive sins? Who is this in this lesson? This is God himself, the one who created us, the one who has authority over everything, and he has the authority to look at us and say that we are forgiven. And not only does he have the authority, but remember, this is a whole scene of what? Of grace. Your God delights in you so much that he just wants to forgive you. And he just wants you to know that you are loved, fully known, fully loved. That's what... What is real love? Real love is is knowing someone completely and yet saying, I'm for you completely. He wants you to experience his love, his forgiveness. He wants you to be set free. He wants you to have wholeness. And Jesus came into this world, lived the life you and I were meant to live so he could go to a cross and take the justice for all your sins and mine that we deserve and pay for it there. You don't have to carry guilt or shame. You don't have to punish yourself or worry about being punished by God because all of it was carried by Jesus. He died, he defeated it on the cross, and then he rose again to give you the life that you were created to have with God. So you can know that you are right with him. You have forever life with him. You have new life with him now. I want you to ask yourself, when God looks at you, what is he thinking? And from this lesson, here are some things. If you're a note taker, this is the time to grab that pen. You can flip to the next page of your folder. There's a little thought bubble here. What is God thinking? When he looks at you, God says, Eli, I delight in you. God says, Bob, I want to show you grace. I want to give you a gift. God looks at you and he says, Helen, When you receive my love and love me in return, this is what I've always wanted most. That's what I want. For you to just receive my love and then love me back. Let's see. Liz. God looks at you and says, you are set free. And Tamar, he looks at you and he says, your whole life Well, your life is whole because our relationship is restored. God looks at you. This this is what he says. I delight in you. I want to show grace to you, give you a gift. When you receive my love and love me in return, this is what I've always wanted. You're set free and your your life is whole because our relationship's restored. That's what God says to you. And then every person you encounter, even that person who would be so shocking if they came up and sat right next to you, Remember that God wants, God looks at them and says, I delight in you too. And what I want for you is to receive my grace. What do I want? I want to forgive you. I want to set you free. I want to make your life whole. This is how God looks at every person you encounter. So I encourage you to imagine the person that you would have the hardest time sitting next to and embracing them being next to you and recognize that God is saying these things to them when you get caught up in what other people are thinking about you when you get caught up in thinking about other people or maybe the worst voice that we hear is not what other people think about you but what you think about you ask yourself what is he thinking